So Romans chapter 2, we'll be starting again. We're going to recap verse 4, go into verses 5 and 6. We'll see how far we get today. But we can only be saved by Jesus Christ. His method of salvation is regeneration, and this is done through the Holy Spirit, which we just talked about. The Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. It's the rebirth, the born-again experience. And we have to employ those words because today when you ask somebody, are you a Christian? Are you a believer? It may not mean the same thing. No, are you born again? What do you mean born again? Have you been regenerated? Does the Holy Spirit indwell you? Are you born again? Do you have the new life? Then it dives deeper and you must examine, do, am I? The new inward principles of life that begin to manifest themselves outwardly. Is there a change in your life? Do you look the same as you did before? How fitting then, don't you think? Wouldn't you agree? To talk about the Helper, the Holy Spirit, and His work here. The Apostle Paul, he's been writing to the Church of Rome, correct? That's what we've been talking about. Now we can sit here and say, well, it sure seems like he's writing to unbelievers. Well, you'd be right, because he is. Well, if he's writing to the church at Rome, why is he writing to unbelievers? Well, in every church there are believers and unbelievers, if you really sit and think about it. That happens in every church. Remember the story that uh, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is giving a parable. And verses 24 through 30, Jesus giving this parable, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest you will gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares, bind them in bundles to burn them but gather the wheat into my barn. He's talking about people, believers and unbelievers, and separating out. That's what's happening. That's what's going to happen. Wherever Christ sows true Christians, Satan comes and plants counterfeits in any church. So when preaching... We must know our audience, but we don't always know what camp they reside in. And I think the Apostle Paul, man, he's so aware of that. And he's talking to both camps with a plea. As born-again Christians, we're given the command to go and to make disciples. But we can't save anybody. We're to go and share, but we can't do it. But we can plant seeds. Some messages have an evangelistic tone. 
Some message have a lot of historical application. These are all included in the messages to both exhort and encourage the believer at the same time to evangelize the unbeliever. And so today we might sit here and think through these messages, going through these chapters, and we can sit through them and we can think to ourselves, well, why do I need to be here then if I'm a believer? Because as we sit through them, it helps us walk through the dark areas of the church, helps us understand what may be the mentality of the unbeliever, and it can help us in our approach. And it can remind us that there are people that don't know Christ still, because we can get wrapped up in our own little worlds and think, well, I already have Christ, I'm good, I'm set, and we forget that there are people going to hell. But the Apostle Paul doesn't forget. I mean, this is his ministry. He wants people to know. Remember, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm a privilege to share it, and I desire to share it. Why? Because I know what's going to happen to you if I don't. And I want to leave every opportunity on the table for you to acknowledge it, to accept it. I want my hands to be clean of anybody else's blood that I can say, when I can hear Jesus say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's why we sit. That's why we listen to these. Have you ever quoted that scripture that says, and, and we, we, we misquote it many times, God's word does not come back void. God's word doesn't come back void. We say that a lot. We quote verse 11, only half of it, but we ruin the picture by omitting verse 10. And I encourage you this week, learn it. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, learn it. What does it tell us? It says this, For as the rain comes down, and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Wow, what a great picture. Look at it, what he's saying. As the rain and snow come down, I picture a mountain and the rain and the snow is on it and then it melts and it goes out to the rest of the land and it goes into the soil and it has a purpose and things bud and they grow as a result of it. That's the picture. And his word's not going to come back Void. It's going to accomplish his purposes. Talking with a friend the other day, and they have a child, they have a son that is a wayward child who grew up in a Christian home, but right now they're just in this place. All their lives, this child has heard the scriptures poured into them over and over. And as I'm talking to this friend, they tell me, my son began repeating the words of Scripture back to me. And this verse came to my mind. And I shared with that person, all your years of praying, they're soaking in. Don't give up. 
the watering has had its purpose. It's being fulfilled. It's taking place. Things are budding up. He may remember one day. This is why it's so important. Important Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Don't give up. They will come back to the Lord. That's our hope. That's our prayer. Charles Spurgeon, this was in our devotional the other day. Charles Spurgeon, quoting Ecclesiastes 11.1, says, Cast the bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. And he expounds on this, and he writes in his devotional, he says, We must not expect to see an immediate reward for all the good we do. Nor must we always confine our efforts to places and persons which seem likely to yield us a recompense for our labors. Like the places you would go, that would be the easiest you would think. The Egyptian casts his seed upon the waters of the Nile, where it might seem a sheer waste of corn. But in due time, the flood subsides, the rice or other grain sinks into the fertile mud, and rapidly a harvest is produced. Let us today do good to the unthankful and the evil. Let us teach the careless and the obstinate. Unlike Unlikely waters may cover hopeful soil. Nowhere shall our labor be in vain in the Lord. So good. Although God already knows who are His, the Bible says, and who are predestined. Ooh, we don't like that word. Predestination. Nevertheless, he still tells us to go and to tell. It's interesting, right? His desire, he says, is for all to be saved. Jesus died for all. Isn't that interesting? How the Bible says he already knows who will, yet he died for all. And guess what? You and I, we don't know who that is. So don't try to guess. And we can't sit there and say, well, it's predestination. So God knows already who is going to be. No, we need to share it. We're given the instruction to do it. And we'll get into all that as we continue in the book of Romans. But God's word will, proclaim, will fulfill all he proclaims. It will fulfill. It does not return to him void. It fulfills his purposes. And... Not only does it count redemption, but it will fulfill the promise of judgment. That's what the Bible teaches. And the only way to avoid judgment is repentance. And that's what we must talk about first. This is what's happening in the book of Romans, in chapter 2, verse 4, where he talks about repentance. But he's talking about them despising the very thing that is needed to come to a saving knowledge of Christ, repentance. And we'll dive into that a little bit more. Then we'll also look at what is meant to bring repentance also brings judgment. God's Word. We'll see that. So Paul here is continuing on, and he's pulling apart all the possible arguments that they can come up with. His desire is to demonstrate that we are all in universal sin, as we've looked uh, over many times, and we're in need of individual salvation. So we're born into universal sin. We've proved that. Paul's made the argument, 
And he's also now making an argument that salvation is individual. It's not universal. He wants the unbeliever to see the need, and he's making the point. And that must happen before repentance can take place. And as Christians, again, we sit through these messages to be reminded of these needs. So in verse 4, just recapping, it says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? So Paul had picked up the argument that the very thing needed, repentance, was being despised. Now to despise something is active. It it requires effort on our part to despise something. And that's what was happening. It's intentionally not considering or looking at something for what it is. If I look at it, then I have to acknowledge it. Then what? Then I have to make a decision about it. But if I don't acknowledge it, and I just act like it's not there, maybe it'll go away. But guess what? This is not going away. Because the end is coming. Well, you guys have been talking about that for years. Well, it's coming one way or another. It will come in your lifetime because you'll either die or the Lord will come back. There's an eternity. Where are you going to be is the question. They are despising the very things that were to lead them to repentance. They're Old Testament words. They're despising it. They're not even looking at it. They're not even considering it. Well, if I don't have to look at it if it's not there. And, there's, and he's saying these riches, they're riches, they're treasures of God's goodness, His forbearance, His long-suffering. If you want to know why He hasn't come back yet, maybe He's waiting for you. Maybe He's waiting for that person. Well, how long will He wait? I don't know. These are all good things. His goodness, forbearance, His long-suffering. Before repentance can take place, there has to be an acknowledgement of a need. This is the Apostle Paul's argument. Paul's uh, pointing out that we are all in need of salvation. Every one of us. That universal sin that we're born into. And God is so good, and He's so patient with us, His forbearance is even long-suffering patience. I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. Because I don't want anybody to go to hell. I want That's what the Bible says. He wants everybody to be saved. Even knowing that not everybody will. I don't understand that. If you understand that, then please help me with that. But I don't know anybody who understands that clearly. And it's a miracle of the Lord. I mean, the Bible tells us we can't understand Him. He's beyond our figuring out. So Paul was putting down the argument that delayed delayed judgment was approval of sin. I think many people think that. Well, delayed judgment, well... If I'm getting away with this, if nobody's saying anything about it, it must be okay. Delayed judgment is not approval of sin. 
I ran that red light, didn't get caught. I'm going to do it again. Keep running it, keep running it, keep running it. Eventually, you're going to get caught. Delayed judgment is not approval of sin. It's still wrong to run that red light. Can't do it. You're not supposed to do it. But nobody saw me. God sees everything. God, in actuality, He was delaying and still is so that we do not go to hell for the unbeliever. It is therefore these things, these very things, these demonstrations of His character and His love for us that should actually lead us to repentance. These are the very things that should lead us to repentance. But because we despise them and we shove them away, we don't acknowledge that. We don't understand that. And he says in verse 4 that they are what? They are not knowing. This has been translated a contemptuous unconcern for it, a willing ignorance of it. They're being willingly ignorant. They're not only ignorant, they are willingly ignorant. There is a deliberate element. The fact of the matter is that they ought to know that there is no excuse for their not knowing because the evidence is there. The facts are all before them, which we've proven, which was his argument. And they do not know them because they do not want to know them. It would be very inconvenient for them to know them. That would mean there have to be a change. It's being willingly ignorant. I don't want to know because if I know, then I'm responsible for the knowledge. I remember being at Calvary Chapel Laverne. I was given a responsibility to someone. I was asking them, do you want to know the combination and codes? Because I would send them to do things of all the offices and everything. And they said, no, because then I'll be responsible. The less I know, the better was the response. That's being willingly ignorant. I don't want to know because if I know, then I'm responsible. That's the issue. These things were to lead to repentance. To get the full picture, we have to look at the Latin and the Greek. The Latin word means to think again, which is where I get the title for the message. For heaven's sake, look again. It means to think again, to cause us to stop and consider, to think about it. Turn with me for a moment. can hold to your hand on Romans uh, chapter 2. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. You remember the story of the two sons here? Matthew chapter 21 verses 28 through 32. It says this, but what do you think? I love how the Lord asks that. He starts it off by, what do you think? And it gets us to stand back and say, okay, let me pay attention now. What do you think, he says? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two 
did the will of his father? They said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that the tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. It is the first son in this picture who is the important one. Why? Because this is the person who stopped and who thought again. He reconsidered, and it tells us he relented. He regretted it, and then he went. He said, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to go. I don't want to. And then he thought about it afterwards. He said, you know what? This is the way I ought to go. And he made the decision to go. The second said, I will go, but they never went. What a great picture. So the Latin word to think again, to reconsider it. In the Greek, it's a change of mind, going in a different direction, a complete change of life. Repentance. Consider it, reconsider it. It's the cry of John the Baptist when he started his ministry. It's the cry of Jesus when he began his ministry. And even at Peter's start of the ministry. And it's the cry of the Apostle Paul here. Guys, you are being willingly ignorant. Reconsider what you know to be true. All the evidence is right here in front of you. I've been pointing it out. But you're not considering it. Look again. There must be repentance before there is an acceptance of Jesus Christ. It is the first thing that is needed. It's the first thing that's needed in any ministry. God's patience is not an approval for our continuance in sin. God's patience is to lead us to reconsider our life and where we're going. And we can't mistake that patience. It's to take a second look to change direction in life. We start again, we start against it, but when we acknowledge it and we see our need of it, then we are we have to make a decision. No longer willingly ignorant. We move on in verse 5 it says, "But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but what we've been doing through these messages over these past several weeks is we've been overlapping. So we've been coming back to the last message which we did in verse 4, which we talked about, because there's so much in there. I mean, in these verses, we could probably spend 10 weeks just looking at each word. But we're not going to do that because I think it flows better if we don't. But we'll recap some things. But now we move on. And if we do not ever preach repentance, then we should never expect to see the results of repentance, correct? if we don't ever preach repentance. At the start of every ministry, as we talked about, it should begin with repentance. 
We see it in the start of these great men who have gone before us, even in our Savior, at the start of His ministry. And if we are to be in His likeness, we should be doing the same things. It must be what we employ today as believers, because we know if there's no repentance, there's no acknowledgement, there's no salvation in the person, there's only eternal damnation in hell. That's the result. That's what compelled the Apostle Paul that's what should compel us. If I truly consider my family and friends, if I really think about them, if I really love them, I'm going to tell them the truth. And they, many times, don't want to hear it. And you, get, you become an outcast. And we don't like that. We want to be part of a group. I want to be part of a group. I want everybody to love me. I want everybody to like me. But guess what? Not everybody will. The Bible says to be careful when everybody loves you and likes you. Because you're probably living to appease them and please them rather than pleasing Christ. Now, we don't go out intentionally looking for those things not to be liked. But that's not the aim. That's not the goal. Because if our goal and our aim is to be the one that is liked then we're not leading them to the one that they should come to the knowledge of. That's just being selfish. That's self-centered. And we have to get away from that. Have you ever heard the statement, well, God is a God of love. He would never send anybody to hell. God's a God of love, so why would He take away this thing that makes me feel so good inside that's a wrong lifestyle why would he ever want that away from me god is a god of love so i think he's going to grade on a curve or god is a god of love so i eventually he's going to take everybody with him to heaven you know there are people who believe that but that's not what the bible teaches god is not only a God, of, He is the God of love. And He came to save. But guess what? Who's the one who sends to hell? It's you. It's us. We are the ones who send ourselves there. It is what we think about God that controls what we think about ourselves. I can have a wrong view of God. Or through His Word... I can have the right view of God. And when I truly and genuinely sit down and I consider what He says and I allow the words to come out and change my life, I mean, we do that in other books. We take it and we look at these books and we think, wow, what was the author saying there? And we'll look at, we'll go deep and we'll try to find out in poetry and everything, what were they trying to talk about? I mean, there are classes for that. But then... For some reason, when we pick up the Bible, we go, well, that can't mean that. So it must, I must change it to suit my needs, to read it how it fits my lifestyle. Because, you know, God loves everybody, and it's true. But guess what? God's just. He won't go against His Word. It's what we think about God that controls what we think about ourselves, not the other way around. The wrong view has eternal consequences. This is what we have to consider. We must stop and look again. We have to. Otherwise, we begin 
to harden our hearts towards the Lord, and then it creates distance. The Holy Spirit is with us. He's with everybody. He's the one that convicts the person to say, hey, you don't know me, but I want want you to know me. Here's Jesus. I present him before you, willingly ignorant. I want to see him, because then I have to make a decision. But when we continue to do that, it creates distance and distance and distance. Remember in chapter 1, we talked about the eventual abandonment, turning them over to their own desires, to their own lusts. We don't want anybody to get there. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor His ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear. We bring judgment on ourselves when we don't acknowledge our Savior. So the Apostle Paul, the very thing you guys are despising, is the very thing that is going to bring judgment You want to be judged for your works? You will be judged for your works. They won't look again. They won't reconsider. They're treasuring up for themselves wrath because there is an impenitent heart in play here. Impenitent heart. It's unrepentant. It's unchanged. Verse 4 told of the good riches and the treasures. But here's a different kind of treasure being stored up. This is what he's talking about. It's wrath being stored up for you in the day of judgment. Jesus' second advent. He will render each one according to his deeds. And it's the great settling of accounts, if you will. Time to settle up. We're going to settle up these accounts. If you want to be judged by your works, you will be. And you will fall short. Because the Bible says in James 2.10, For whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he said, do not commit adultery. Also said, do not murder. Now if you do commit adultery, but you do not, but you do not murder, you have become a transgressor, transgressor of the law. Did I read that right? Now if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So storing up wrath in the day of wrath. Maybe you're like me and you have a bunch of change that you have in your car or pockets. I mean, do you save that? We save it. Quarters, nickels, pennies, whatever it might be. I don't know. A lot of people today are just walking over pennies, (laughs) maybe even dimes. But I still pick them up. And then when it gets full, you open them up, you lay them all before you, and you count them up, you see every one before you. This is the picture. All the works and deeds laid out before God. You're storing it up in the day of wrath. You're storing up wrath in the day of wrath. And there's a book that's going to be laid out before God with all your works. 
with everybody's works. Revelations chapter 20, 11 through 15. John writing, getting these visions. And it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, the death, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The great white throne judgment, you do not want to be standing in that line. This is where the book is laid out. And it's saying, these are all the things that you've done. But then there's the book of life right next to it. But you're, but you're written here. You're good to go. The wheat and the tares separating you out. You're good. You're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how your name got written in the book of life. But if it's not written there, you'll be cast in the lake of fire. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. These religions that teach works will be judged by your works. And guess what? It doesn't matter how good the works were. They all fall short. Everything's written here. And if you're not found in the Lamb's book of life, it's eternal damnation. This is the Bible. This is what it teaches. We see in verse 11 where it says there is no partiality with God. He's just. The word that's sent to save is also the word that will judge. But His goodness is forbearance. In true Paul fashion, he's brilliantly taking apart these, argument, these arguments, and he adds to his argument in verse 6. In verse 6, where he says, Who will render to each one according to his deeds. Paul is quoting from Psalm 62, 12. And from Proverbs 24, 12, where it was an exact copy of what was written in the Old Testament. And what is he doing? He's saying your own word that you say you believe in is judging you. And you don't even see it. What a brilliant argument. He's using his own, their own words to condemn them. You ever had somebody do that to you? Make you eat, I'm going to make you eat those words. That's what's happening here. The own words that they trusted, that they said, I believe in this. He's quoting it back to them. And they're saying, well, I don't want to acknowledge that then. Amazing. The very word they claimed to rely upon and believe was judging them. Well, I go to church. My family's Christian. I must be saved. But it's individual. We have to acknowledge it. We have to come to repentance. He didn't use these words, though, I don't believe, as condemnation. 
Because he's warning them. He's saying in Romans chapter 1, guys, take a look. All of these things, the way these people are living is wrong. And it shows and it demonstrates that they are in sin. But before you point your finger at them, you're in sin too. This is the argument. He's trying to get them to look. So he's not using these examples to condemn them, to point their fingers at them. I think we can do that from the pulpit all the time. Use the scriptures to condemn people. But Paul, you got to remember, he was once them. He was once an unbeliever. And we must put ourselves in that place. I was like that. And when we do that, what does it do for us? It provides us a, an outlook. We call it empathy. But it provides us this outlook of, I know, what, I know the issue. I was once there and I love you. Someone loved me and they came to me. So rather than point my finger at you, I would rather just tell you I love you and I want you to know the truth. Because we can get this picture that the Apostle Paul is over here just chewing them out, yelling at him. But you got to remember, he's in a room with one other scribe writing this down, and he's acting like he's arguing these points. Nobody else was there. You know, when you send a text message in all caps, people think you're yelling at them. I mean, it can be misconstrued. But I don't believe that. I believe the Apostle Paul's heart is in love with his fellow man just like his Lord. And that's what we must have. Paul, in love with his fellow man, is pulling out all the stops in every way. Oh, how we need that. He's relentless. He's unashamed of the gospel, taking every opportunity. And it's the power to save, he tells us. That's the power to save. Not me, not my words, but the gospel. He's trying to get them to take another look in hopes that they will turn. And instead of just having their names in a book condemning them, because we're all there, that's the, that's the book that's already, your name's already in. Get it into the book that it's not in by accepting Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's where it starts. That's where it begins. He desired to have their names written in the book of life. We invite people to come to church to hear the gospel. I've invited family over and over, and I will not stop. Well, we have, you know, our kids have soccer and football on that day. That's your God. That's your God. But do I condemn them for that? No, because I understand. I understand the life in the United States. And so I ought not to condemn them for that, but I should continue to ask. I should continue to pray. I should continue to employ the office of who? The Holy Spirit. That He would reveal Himself to them. That He would continue to give me a heart of love. For the Christian, as we sit and we sit here, there's two camps in every church. And we, do we call on the Spirit for help? Do we call on the Spirit for love? And for those 
who don't know Christ, you have to consider where you stand today. Do you stand, which side do you stand on? Do you want to continue to be willingly ignorant, to be actively ignorant and push it away? It has, you have to come to the conclusion because there is an eternity and you have to know where you're going. And it's our hope. It's our desire for the believer. And it can always be viewed incorrectly. Our love is demonstrated in many different ways. But it's coming from a heart of love that we desire everyone to have that opportunity. And that's why we continue. That's why we continue to ask. That's why we continue to move forward. Even when we're told to be quiet. Even when we're told to shut up. Even when we're told, don't talk to me about that anymore. You know, my mom shared a story about my uncle who told her, don't talk to me about God anymore. And you know, he accepted Christ last year because those seeds were planted. Maybe with her closing her mouth, the Holy Spirit will begin to speak to him. We don't know. But she sure was like those words, God's word coming down on a mountain soaking in. We can't forget it. Don't give up. Don't give up. Let's continue to push forward. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this place, God. I continue to look at it as such a miracle that you brought us back to a place where we could share your word, Father, after being gone for a while, Father. And we thank you, Father, for this opportunity to come together and to uh, worship, Lord, not only in song, but in your word. And we pray, Holy Spirit, we employ the duties of your office and we ask you to help us live out and carry out the commandments that you've given to us. We also ask you that those who would finally come to realize there is a need, that they would call upon you and, Lord, you've promised to come running. We need repentance, Lord, so we can have that opportunity to realize I need Jesus. And you know, you'll take care of everything else. We just need to come to that place. And if that's you, you just need to invite the Lord into your heart with everything that you have in genuineness, believing that He died for you on the cross. You can take care of that wherever you're at. It's between you and the Lord. But make sure you know where your name is written. And Jesus, we ask that you would go before us, strengthen us, bless our weak. And Lord, we praise you, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.